Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Television. Visit grassrootstv.org for on-demand community archive footage, as well as educational, inspiring, and entertaining local programming. A contribution to Grassroots TV allows us to bring your voice to the valley and to preserve media that will be enjoyed by future generations. Visit us at grassrootstv.org and follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Twitter. We encourage you to support all the local businesses and citizens that generously underwrite grassroots programming and play an integral role in nurturing open communication among the residents of the Roaring Fork Valley since 1972. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Community Network. And I, we have three people um, who are going to talk to you. The first is the fabulous Peter Ho Davies, who is... Um, Sorry, he's making me laugh. He is um, a Summer Awards faculty member and the award-winning author of The Fortunes and the Welsh Girl. Um, he's also from Britain. Can people from Britain be fabulous? I'm not quite sure about that. We'll find out in a moment. Uh, I always appreciate it when people mention when they're introducing me that I'm originally from Britain because it clears up the accent confusion. People out there are going, New Zealand, Australia, where's he from? So this clarifies things. I did give a reading years ago, and somebody came up to me and asked me at the end where I was from, and I said I was from Britain. And they said they, they noticed the accent, but they thought it might just be an affectation. So uh, <laughs> always keen to clear that up. Um, and so cheesy old British jokes, ones that I've, some of my friends have probably heard me tell before, are actually um, germane, I think, to the, one of the things I wanted to talk about tonight. I wanted to talk about the value, I'm very honored to be asked to talk about, the value of Aspen Words, and particularly the, um, the summer uh, writing uh, workshops that we're engaged in at the moment. And I wanted to think particularly about the question of value for something like this. One of the ways we think about how we value something and its importance is by imagining what our lives would be like if it didn't exist. One of the ways we think about value is to imagine what that thing would be like, or what our lives would be like, without that institution, that person who it might be in some ways as well. And I don't have to actually imagine that, because I come from Britain. And, and I come from Britain many years ago. It's better now, I should stress, in some ways. Um, and back when I was a kid, there were no writing programs. There were no summer programs like this. When I was thinking about becoming a writer, it seemed an impossible thing to do. There was nobody to help me, nobody to guide me. I didn't know a single writer, even at six degrees of separation. Um, the most famous young writer in Britain when I was coming up was uh, a then young fellow called Martin Amos. He's now the oldest enfant terrible in literature. Um, and he, as you may know, was the son of another great famous British writer, Kingsley Amos. And I thought, that's how you became a writer. Right? You were born into it. There was as much chance of me becoming a writer as there was of me becoming the king. Right? It felt like that was the situation. So one of the reasons I'm in your country is because this was a place, when I heard about MFA programs, I heard about writing programs, the idea that somebody would help me become a writer. Right? Somebody would, as I think these programs in this institute do, give me permission to be a writer, allow me to imagine myself being a writer. That was literally life-changing for me. The way I like to think about it, and the phrase I want to leave you with this evening, is to think about it as an aspect of the democratization of art. Right? What I felt in Britain was that I could not do that. Class system, a system of 
taste, a system of culture, a system of regionalism and provincialism and London being the center of things made it impossible. But my experience of the US, one of the things that seems really enshrined in the Aspen Words program is that idea that we can all try to do this and be aided in doing so. And that idea that democratization of art seems to me, you know, a wonderful thing for artists generally, but also a genuinely American thing as well. And I'm thrilled to be here to celebrate it with you all tonight. Thank you. Um, thank you, Peter. And our, our next speaker is our, our current writer-in-residence, Francisco Cantu, who, who is a New York Times bestselling author of um, The Line Becomes a River. Uh, so, um, as Jamie mentioned, I'm the, uh, the, the writer-in-residence. Um, and uh, I'm a first-time author, which I don't think a lot of the writers in residence have been. So to me, this, this is my first uh, residency. It's the first time I've ever had like an entire month uh, just to focus on writing. So um, very transformational experience, as you could imagine. Um, so my book, uh, The Line Becomes a River, is about uh, the time I spent um, as a Border Patrol agent, uh, the, the, the very fraught experience that I had doing that. Um, and so uh, I live in Tucson in the desert and um, staying up in Woody Creek, uh, I'm staying with uh, Issa, Issa and Daniel. Um, as you can imagine, it's like 105 degrees in Tucson right now. Um, and I'm like wearing sweaters, even like in the shade in the middle of the day, so it's fantastic. Um, and the only obligations of, of the residency um, are uh, that you make a special appearance in um, you know, valley schools or private Aspen Words member functions, uh, events like this, um, and that you hold, uh, most importantly, a public event. Um, each author holds a public event for the, the Roaring Fork community. Um, and so mine was last week um, at the Temporary in Basalt. I, I recognize some of you from being there. Thank you for coming. Um, and so, you know, the, the hope there is that that event sort of exposed the audience to um, a larger conversation about the border, um, which is not as far away as it seems, um, and a conversation that I hope sort of offered a look at the human cost of immigration enforcement, um, a conversation that, that wasn't rooted in political rhetoric, um, or, or poisonous ideology, and that also, I hope, offered community members here um, ways to sort of tangibly help and get involved, um, help migrants in the Roaring Fork community. Um, and, and I want to say uh, one more thing about sort of um, the importance of having time and solace to write, um, because I mentioned uh, that I'm a first-time writer, so I've only written a book once. And um, the only way I was able to write that book was by like leaving the city where I live um, for three to four days at a time. Um, I had like an uncle who was never at his house, and so I could like drive two and a half hours to his house and write in complete. And I and I didn't have cell phone service there, so like no one could get a hold of me. And that's the only way that I wrote this book. Um, uh, well, I also was in an MFA program, so I had like the structure from the MFA program, and then I had agent and publisher imposed deadlines. Um, but something that you probably don't hear writers talk about very much is this like massive void 
that you are faced with after a book is published, um, after all of the touring and the publicity are, are finally done, um, you know, you're sort of, I at least was faced with this total gulf in understanding how to structure my time, how to reorient my thinking and reading around a new project. Um, and so for me, Aspen Words has given me th the space to do that. Um, and I'll give you a quick example. Uh, I mentioned that much of my writing is about the border. Um, and I have to confess that in recent months, um, really since the book has come out, I've had a, a very difficult time even reading the news about what is happening there. Um, and since that, it's probably, um, probably many of you feel the same. And since arriving in Aspen a few weeks ago, I've sort of found myself, whenever I check in you know, online, sort of looking away from these images of uniformed men standing between crying children and bewildered parents. Um, and, I, and I've been you know, gripped with this like, abstract sense of shame um, in knowing that I, that I once wore that uniform um, and that I was participating in the same dehumanizing policies uh, of deterrence, right, that are really at the root of this family separation crisis that we're seeing right now. And I think shame is a really difficult thing uh, to write about. And if I were at home, um, I think it would be very easy, especially with the World Cup going on, um, you know, to distract myself uh, away from my sort of ill-defined writing rituals. But up in Woody Creek, I've been able to really make it my job every day uh, to wake up and sort of, you know, break through that comfortable different that that comfortable distance um, that I would prefer to have insulating me from all of this news. Um, and I've been able to sort of lean in to the task of grappling with what it means to uh, observe and participate in these horrifying realities. And um, so thanks to Aspen Words, I've really been able to find a way to, uh, to get up every day and, and keep writing about it. And so for that, I'm very grateful. Uh, support these guys. Thank you so much. Okay. And to close us out, we have a student from Roaring Fork High School um, who's going to perform a poem for you. Um, and uh, Levi Razor has participated in our Writers in the Schools program for the last several years. And um, Levi, please come join us. So, as many of you probably know, every year through the Aspen Words, a bunch of po uh, poets come to the local schools and like teach workshops. And I was first introduced to Aspen Words when I was in sixth grade, when Merlin Hemsworth came to our school. And one of my teachers signed me up for it, and she's like, you'd be great for poetry. I was like, no, I wouldn't. But um, <laughs> it's been years later, and I actually really love it. So I'm going to say a poem that I said at the youth poetry slam. You sit there laughing at the kitchen table and you tell me about this one time at a Grateful Dead concert where everyone was tripping on acid, floating in the air, not a care in the world. But then the police came and tried to arrest them so everyone stripped off their clothes, spreading them like leaves on the ground and tried to hug the police. You told me you were watching from the sidelines, but I know you were right up there in your birthday clothes, jumping up and down like the world was ending. And then another time at Woodstock when you're trying to figure out the meaning of life and someone on the stage said, attention, do not take the brown acid. 
If you have taken the brown acid, please report to the medic tent immediately. And I can imagine the look of pure dread on your face trying to remember if you had taken the brown acid. And then when I was 12, my friend pulling me away, saying something about these two crazy drunks dancing like fools. As he pulls me to the crowd, I look at him and say, hey, that's my dad and uncle. Your rusty colored sideburns glow like headlights. I tell you, you look like an Amish farmer and you laugh. You tell me about all the crazy things you and my uncle got into during college and sometimes I forget that you're only really human. I watch cars race by out the window and I listen to you sing along with the radio like the whole world's gonna stop to hear you. Sometimes I wonder if you're still at that concert, lying in the mud surrounded by butt naked hippies and if I'm not really here at all and if you're 19 again, if my entire existence is just one crazy drug trip, and if so, I hope it's not a bad one. All right, so there you go. That's why you should make a donation to Aspen Words. <laughs> so that your kids and grandkids can write poems about you. Thank you. A Rhodes Scholar, the recipient of a 2016 White House Champion of Change Award, Dan Porterfield joins the Institute after serving as president of Franklin and Marshall College since 2011. Dan is an avid reader with a passion for literature and social justice. He is also an award-winning professor of English and spent many years teaching literature in prisons. He writes and speaks often about the essential role of the humanities in cultivating citizenship, building community, and renewing democracy. We are so grateful to have Dan's leadership at the Aspen Institute and that he is able to join us tonight. So please give a round of applause for him. Next up, our guest of honor, Mohsen Hamid. Mohsen is the internationally best-selling author of Exit West, Moth Smoke, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, and Discontent and Its Civilizations. His award-winning novels have been adapted for the cinema, shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, and translated into more than 30 languages. His essays and short stories have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker Magazine, among many other publications. Mohsen res now resides in Lahore, his birthplace after living for a number of years in New York and London. His novel, Exit West, which is just one of my very favorites, is about migration and about how every one of us is a migrant and how we might find an opportunity an optimistic future together. Exit West is also the first ever winner of the, of, of the Aspen Words Literary Prize. Now you have to come up. <laughs> Thank you, Adrian. Thank you very much.
thank you, Mosin, and thank you to all who organized this event, all who support Aspen Words, um, all who are here today in this beautiful room, all lovers of literature. Thank you to all who have prepared our meal and are serving our meal. Um, We're surrounded with grandeur. We have lovers of books in this room. Um, you made a, just a short trip to get here. Uh, so could you begin by maybe telling this group, um, how long did it take to get from, uh, from where you were in Greece to where you are now? Um, I left uh, Mykonos in Greece at uh, six in the morning on Monday, Greek time, <laughs> which would be late Sunday night here, and I arrived here about four or five hours ago. Okay, thank you. So one of the greatest novelists on the planet Earth traveled all this far to be with you and to be with us and to share some insights, not only with those in this room, but also we're webcasting this. And so our plan is for Mosin to break the internet tonight. Well, <laughs> we can hope, yeah. That, we can, um, Will you say a little bit about your life story prior to becoming a writer? Uh, where did you go to school? Where did you grow up? What were some of the early interests that you had in your career? And maybe how did you start to imagine yourself becoming a writer? Uh, I was born in Lahore, in Pakistan, and uh, I was a talkative kid. Um, I spoke, spoke uh, fluently by about the age of one. And uh, at the age of three, we moved to California. My father did his PhD at Stanford. He's a university professor um, and, uh, in Pakistan. And uh, in 1974, we moved to California and um, spent six years there. Uh, during that time, my mother used to work and would commute off uh, to her, I guess, proto-tech company uh, in Silicon Valley, which wasn't called Silicon Valley then, as far as I knew, um, and uh, uh, Redwood City. And um, she would come back, and during the day, my dad would make popcorn, and we'd watch cartoons and hang out. And, uh, um, and then, at the age of nine, moved back to Pakistan, went to school in Pakistan, came back to America to study at age 18, and throughout this time, I'd been reading a lot, uh, fantasizing constantly, um, imagining all kinds of crazy stuff, but had never thought of writing as a, uh, as a profession. Um, I think uh, Peter was saying earlier this evening that, uh, you know, how do you become a writer? I didn't know anybody who was a writer. Um, I didn't think it was, a, it was an actual job um, <laughs> that one could have. <clears throat> And I arrived at university, I went to Princeton, and um, uh, this woman across the hall from me told me she was taking a creative writing class. And, and I asked what this was, and she said, well, you know, we sit and we write stories, and it's also, it's pass-fail. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I said, so you get, you get, you know, full university credit for this class, and you just write stories, and it's pass-fail. Um, and I thought, you know, America's a great country. <laughs> uh, uh, and, um, and so I didn't major in creative writing, um, but I took uh, a handful of courses, workshops um, with Joyce Carol Oates uh, and my senior year with Toni Morrison. 
Um, and, uh, wow. uh, and so, I mean, I'm not sure how much they taught me, um, but they did something enormously important for me um, by reading my stuff and you know, taking it seriously, um, or at least pretending to, uh, you know, convincingly, they, um, they allowed me to imagine that I could be a writer. And it was there that I, I basically received permission to imagine this thing. And then I went to law school, um, I decided not to be a lawyer, worked as a management consultant in New York for a few years. I was working on my first novel throughout, published my first novel in 2000, and then have bounced around working in London, returned to Pakistan a decade ago. I'm now 46 years old and have been back in Pakistan for most of the last decade. So, and you went to law school. So do you, what was it about the law that made you, that attracted you? Was it, does it anything about texts, about expression, about storytelling? Um, I think, you know, it was, it was a case where uh, one can be uh, deceived by the power of narrative. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, imagined for myself that I would study law and become this sort of constitutional lawyer in Pakistan and fight injustice and um, do all sorts of things. And, um, and you know, uh, a couple of things happened. I began to study law. I discovered I didn't much care for the study of law. And then the Supreme Court in Pakistan was ransacked by these uh, sort of thuggish hooligans, you know, inspired by the uh, political leadership of that time, thereby rendering, you know, the notion of change through Supreme Court litigation a bit less attractive. Um, and I figured I had to do something else. And so I convinced a professor, I went to Harvard Law, I, I convinced a professor there um, to accept my novel um, as my law school thesis. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, look, you know, I really don't want to write a no. traditional law school thesis. He said, look, I don't want to read another law school thesis. <laughs> Let's find some way uh, to justify this. And, and the novel, I said, it's going to be structured like a trial. He says, done. <laughs> so, so that's how it worked out. And then I became a consultant. Um, I, I actually never really thought that, uh, I'm still not sure, in fact, that um, uh, it's possible to make a living as a writer. Yeah. So I had always planned on having a job. Um, and, uh, um, and I wanted that job to have the possibility of allowing me to live in Pakistan again, uh, perhaps. And so there weren't many MFA programs in Pakistan, so I had to have a job that wasn't uh, teaching writing. Um, and so it was first, I thought law, then I thought consulting. But then when, oddly enough, when I moved back to Pakistan, I was just writing. Yeah. So do you love writing? Does it, does it, do you feel when you're writing that you are doing something that just grows out of your spirit, your soul, it's what you're meant to do? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I do feel precisely that. Um, you know, when, when a sentence comes out well-formed um, or a flow is happening and something is going, it feels like this is what, you know, this is why I am in the universe to do this thing. However, um, sitting by yourself in a room for years, and it's now been 25 years of, for me of writing fiction, novels. Um, um, I began my first novel 25 years ago. 
Uh, sitting by yourself in a room for many hours a day for 25 years um, is, uh, uh, you know, is dangerous. <laughs> and uh, um, it can be painful, it can be alienating. Um, and personally for me, I now have a relationship with writing where I love it, but I understand it's, it's destructive potential in my life as well. And so I, I, I'm grateful to have, you know, children and um, wife, parents, friends that pull me out of it because um, it's like staring at the sun, you know, you can go blind if you do it too long. So it was great work done early. And then this novel hit the scene, The Reluctant Fundamentalist. And as I understood from reading some of the articles about this book, you had wrote it a couple different times. And to keep coming back to it, history in, in part, forced you to, to rethink the book. And um, it's a brilliant book. Uh, and if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, it is brilliant in many different levels, one of which is that the book is narrated by a protagonist to a listener, and the listener is essentially becomes a character. And I think that listener is in part Americans in America. You may have a whole other way you see it, but that's how I was reading it. I felt like I was in the, I was in the book. Um, so will you say a little bit about uh, the, the development of this book? Because it seems as if you really pulled together a lot of strands of your thinking and your life story in order to develop this book. Well, um, my first novel, Mott's Mook, was about seven drafts and seven years. Um, and this novel, The Art and Fundamentalist, my second book, I thought I would do quickly, but it was also about seven drafts and seven years. Um, I, I follow what I consider to be the Douglas Adams school of, of, of uh, fiction. Um, in the Hitchhiker's Guide series somewhere, uh, Douglas Adams writes that the secret to throwing yourself, to flying is throwing yourself at the ground and, and missing. And, um, and I tend to throw myself at the ground and smack into it, uh, you know, with each draft for the first few years of a book. Um, in this book, uh, it wasn't until several years afterwards, I began the book before 9-11 happened. Um, it had a very different voice. It was being told in a different form. Um, what eventually unlocked this book was the decision to um, uh, set it as a dramatic monologue where this Pakistani character meets a presumably American stranger in a bazaar in Lahore and begins to speak to this stranger and we never hear the Americans responses we're only hearing the Pakistani speaking as though it's a one-man play um, and that half narrative is an inherently destabilized structure so a reader is trying to balance that you're trying to figure out well how you know what what else is happening in the process of balancing it, you bring yourself and your interpretation to the text. And so um, uh, hopefully The Art and Fundamentalist is a book in which you, the reader, are, are being addressed not just with a you, but are being forced to write half yeah. the book. Um, the second thing about this book was uh, what eventually made it work, uh, or made it work for me anyway, was um, I tried writing it in American accented first person. I tried writing it in a sort of fabular style. I tried writing it many different ways. Eventually the accent of the book, which was a, a kind of a stylized um, uh, uh, English uh, derived from the British colonial legacy in Pakistan and still practiced by certain graduates of certain uh, schools in Pakistan um, that, that date back that time. Um, a very anachronistic um, quite British, slightly not, uh, form of English. Um, 
that voice was very important because I wanted the character in this novel um, to have no religious descriptors. We don't know anything about Chinggis's religious inner life, whether he believes at all. Um, his voice instead serves um, as a stand-in. Because I, his voice, I wanted his voice to sound like the way I thought many people think Islam feels. Um, vaguely anachronistic, formal, um, rule-based, uh, potentially menacing. And so, and so, and so his voice um, allows the creation of a persona um, which may or may not be present inside the character itself. Yeah, it's an incredible read. I highly recommend this one. Now let's turn. I'm going to ask you one question that we're going to get a chance to listen to your words read by uh, a trained actor. Um, the book Exit West, how would you describe it to a reader who hasn't yet read it? And you're hoping they'll read it and you want to introduce it to them in a way that will um, orient them and get them excited about digging in. Um, Exit West is a, uh, a love story. Um, it is a story of first love. And we refer to love as a first love because um, pres presumably there was later a second love or a third love. The first loves are, are transient. Um, it's a novel about love and about transience and the two main characters are fleeing a city that descends into a brutal civil war. Um, and it obeys the laws of physics as we understand them with one small exception, which is that there are these black rectangles, uh, magical doors, through which you can step, which begin to open in this world, which allow the next several centuries of human migration to occur in just a year or two. And so billions of people move. And that's the nutshell. So now we get a chance to hear um, uh, the beautiful language and sentences uh, of Mohsen. And to do that, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Iris Baumier, who is an actress who's starring in um, Ragtime, which is opening this Saturday night in Theatre Aspen. It might seem surprising that even in such circumstances, Said's and Nadia's attitudes towards finding a way out were not entirely straightforward. Said desperately wanted to leave his city, in a sense he always had. But in his imagination, he had thought he would leave it only temporarily, intermittently, never once and for all. And this looming potential departure was altogether different, for he doubted he would come back. And the scattering of his extended family and his circle of friends and acquaintances forever struck him as deeply sad, as amounting to the loss of a home, no less of his home. Nadia was possibly even more feverishly keen to depart, and her nature was such that the prospect of something new, of change, was at its most basic level exciting to her. But she was haunted by worries too, revolving around dependence, Worries that in going abroad and leaving their country, she and Saeed's and Saeed's father might be at the mercy of strangers, subsistent on handouts caged in pens like vermin. Nadia had long been, and would afterwards continue to be, more comfortable with all varieties of movement in her life than was Saeed, 
in whom the impulse of nostalgia was stronger, perhaps because his childhood had been more idyllic, or perhaps this was simply his temperament. Both of them, though, whatever their misgivings, had no doubt that they would leave if given the chance. And so neither expected when a handwritten note from the agent arrived, pushed under their apartment door one morning and telling them precisely where to be at precisely what time the following after, that Said's father would say, you two must go, but I will not come. Nadia and Said said this was impossible and explained in case of misunderstanding that there was no problem that they had paid the agent for three passages and would all be leaving together. And Saeed's father heard them out, but would not be budged. They, he repeated, had to go, and he had to stay. Saeed threatened to carry his father over his shoulder if he needed to, and he had never spoken to his father in this way. And his father took him aside, for he could see the pain he was causing his son, and when Saeed asked why his father was doing this, what could possibly make him want to stay? Saeed's father said, your mother is here. Saeed said, mother is gone. His father said, not for me. And this was true in a way. Saeed's mother was not gone for Saeed's father, not entirely. And it would have been difficult for Saeed's father to leave the place where he had spent a life with her, difficult not to be able to visit her grave each day. And he did not wish to do this. He preferred to abide, in a sense, in the past, for the past offered more to him. But Saeed's father was also thinking of the future, even though he did not want to say this to Saeed. For he feared that if he said this to his son, that his son might not go, and he knew above all else that his son must go. And what he did not say was that he had come to that point in a parent's life when, if a flood arrives, one knows one must let go of one's child, contrary to all instincts one had when one was younger. Because holding on can no longer offer the child protection. It can only pull the child down and threaten them with drowning. For the child is now stronger than the parent. And the circumstances are such that the utmost of strength is required. And the arc of a child's life only appears for a while to match the arc of a parent's. In reality, one sits atop another, a hill atop a hill, a curve atop a curve, and Saeed's father's arc now needed to curve lower, while his son still curved higher. For with an old man hampering them, these two young people were simply less likely to survive. Said's father told his son he loved him and said that Said must not disobey him in this, that he had not believed in commanding his son, but in this moment was doing so, that only death awaited Said and Nadia in this city, and that one day when things were better, Said would come back to him. And both men knew, as this was said, that it would not happen, that Said would not be able to return while his father still lived. And indeed, as it transpired, Said would not, after this night that was just beginning, spend another night with his father again. Said's father then summoned Nadia into his room and spoke to her without Said, and said that she was he was entrusting her with his son's life, and she whom he called daughter must, like a daughter, not fail him whom she called father. 
and she must see Saeed through to safety, and he hoped she would one day marry his son and be called mother by his grandchildren. But this was up to them to decide. And all he asked was that she remain by Saeed's side until Saeed was out of danger. And he asked her to promise this to him, and she said she would promise only if Saeed's father came with them. And he said again that he could not, but that they must go. He said it softly, like a prayer. And she sat there with him in silence, and the minutes passed. And in the end, she promised. And it was an easy promise to make, because she had at that time no thoughts of leaving Said. But it was also a difficult one, because in making it, she felt she was abandoning the old man. And even if he did have his siblings and his cousins and might now go live with them or have them come live with him, they could not protect him as Saeed and Naida could. And so by making the promise he demanded she make, she was in a sense killing him. But that is the way of things. For when we migrate, we murder from our lives those we leave behind. How does it feel to hear a trained actress with such an extraordinary voice read your words to a rapt audience uh, hanging on every, every comma? I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's also very weird. Um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, for so long, I mean, my writing day is spent um, mostly procrastinating when then when I'm not procrastinating, typing a little bit, but mostly just pacing around in my study reading out loud. Um, so I've read these pages thousands of times to myself, and when I hear somebody else read them, in a way, it's, um, it's, it's very strange, and it's quite beautiful for me because I, it's, it's as though I'm inside a reader's head. Yeah. Like, this is somebody yeah. who isn't me um, making something out of these words. It's, it's, it's cool. And do you like the idea that your readers are interpreting, debating, misinterpreting, changing their views, and constantly trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and they may end up with interpretations you never intended or imagined would come? Yeah, I think, I think that um, the, uh, the unique function form of, of literature is that um, among the different storytelling forms that we have, uh, if you consider film or television, uh, which are dominant in terms of their reach, um, those storytelling forms come pre-imagined for you. The world in those forms looks like the world. Um, the world in a book looks like, you know, this. Um, and uh, it's, it's, um, it's letters and spaces and punctuation marks. and. Um, the experience of a book is not that. The experience of a book is characters and emotions and feelings and ideas and um, images. And so it is the reader who is creating that, who animates these punctuation marks and these letters. And um, a novelist only writes a half novel. A novel comes into existence when 
those letters and punctuation mark and spaces encounter the imagination of a reader who animates them into their individual experience. And so um, for me, that's what the form does best. Uh, and I try to write small books um, with lots of space uh, because it's like a conversation. You know, if you talk all the time, nobody else gets a chance. So, yeah. so I try to leave space in the books for people to do exactly what you said. So you created these characters that, that, that make a love story, Saeed and Nadia. And we as readers are invited to see them in the context of a society that is crumbling. Uh, there's, there's some kind of violence happening. There's government. There's resistance. Um, it's becoming more unstable. It's becoming more unsafe. The clouds are looming from the very beginning. And so we see the, these lovers coming together with their own particularity. At the same time, we never are able to just feel happy that they're finding each other. You, you make us remember it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Um, so was that part of the plan? Well, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think that um, there is a very dangerous um, myth being peddled around these days, which is the myth of permanence. You know, the idea that things can not change. Um, that is not possible. You know, everything changes. Um, uh, our cities, countries, these are all new things. Um, even our languages aren't necessarily that old. Um, you know, to be a human being is to lose everything. That is what it is to be one of us. Um, and when people peddle false permanence, we can be young forever. Um, our children will date people who look like us. Um, the language will be of this nature. Our country will remain like this. Our town will remain like this. This is a falsehood. Um, uh, neither history nor human life works in this way. And so for me, it was very important to um, explore impermanence and transience, but not as a kind of you know, uh, dystopic, um, terrifying hell, yeah. um, but as something, as something which, although you know, sad, um, has potential for beauty and hope and optimism as well. We lose everything, and yet we can experience beautiful things. And so, and so the love story in the novel is a love story about that. It's a love story about loss. Um, and, uh, and I think that human culture throughout history has been about this. How do we cope with the fact that we lose everything? Um, and at the moment, uh, we have turned away from this tradition. Um, we're being told that we can go back to our own youth or to our you know, quote unquote civilizational youth, our country's youth, the heyday of the you know, Muslim empire or the American nation or Britain before the European Union or you know, whatever. And um, I think that these nostalgic narratives are, are, are very, very dangerous. And so, and so the love story here is something that many of us will have experienced. Um, it's something that passes, and something that's wonderful. The parents of Saeed have their own love story, and uh, I don't want to reveal too much except to say that the passage you just heard, um, Saeed's father is expressing his conviction that he should not leave the country, and in part staying is to stay with the memories of and love of his wife, um, who had recently died. And so 
Saeed and Nadia have to make a very difficult choice. Um, but the context of the choice is not any one country. You didn't tell us we were in, pick your country, in Syria or someplace. You, you made that more of a kind of a global, universal uh, depiction of a society crumbling. Is that fair to say? That yeah, the, the city where the novel begins isn't named, yeah. um, intentionally so. And some of the details have been removed. And, and I often use namelessness in my fiction, um, in part because uh, I think the reader will provide names. Yeah. And it gives more space for the reader to imagine, you know, uh, when mother dies, um, our own mothers are echoed in that death. When a character named mother dies, it's a slightly different thing. So um, that was part of the reason. Part of the reason was, um, although I based the city, let's say, the Nadia begin on, begin in, uh, on Lahore, where I live in yeah. Pakistan, um, and what happens to that city is my own worst nightmare, yeah. which I think many people who live um, in Southwest Asia, North Africa, uh, have this nightmare these days that maybe this could happen here because, you know, uh, Kabul, Baghdad, Damascus, uh, Aleppo, Cairo, Sarajevo, these are ancient cities. Yeah. Um, and so many of them have crumbled. Maybe ours could crumble. So the name of the city is partly um, that, but um, I didn't want to write a narrative of, of, of Pakistan becoming overrun with terrorists yeah. because that narrative is everywhere and I think hopefully false. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the London of this novel is what could happen too. Um, and so as you set, as, as Nadia and Saeed move into different places, how did you think about the depiction of the societies into which they were moving? Well, uh, the novel is geographically autobiographical in the sense that all the places in the, in the novel are places that I've spent time in and often loved. Um, uh, I spent part of my childhood in California, they end up there. I, lived in London for many years, they go there, um, they wind up in Mykonos where I will hopefully fly back to tomorrow. <laughs> and, um, and, and you know, uh, uh, I suppose each of these places is a different version of what can happen. But, but by showing many different versions, what I, I hope um, a slight resonance can be created where we recognize that it is not the movement of people which is strange or ahistorical. It is the notion of borders which is strange and ahistorical. People have always moved. You know, Homo sapiens did not evolve in Aspen, right? <laughs> people, people came here from somewhere. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Aspen is very different today from what it was three centuries ago. So is San Francisco. San Francisco will be as different from San Francisco today in 300 years, as San Francisco today is from San Francisco 300 years ago. If, I mean, this is what the species does. Human beings wander. Africa is our mother continent, but we have all wandered around. Even the people who live in the Rift Valley today, their ancestors wandered around Africa and returned. Um, none of us is a native. And, um, and, so, and so all the places they go to, London, Marin, et cetera, are different variations on this. Um, it's a great species migration, um, uh, which of course creates enormous anxiety and fear and conflict also, um, but is, I think, natural. Yeah. So at, our, at your tables are these doors, and in this novel, the characters pass through portals, uh, like kind of magic realism, moving from one society to the next. 
and in that movement, there's loss, there's change, there's growth, there's sadness, there's um, reinvention, there's continued development of their relationship and themselves individually. Um, but why did you choose to use the, the sort of technique of the portals as a way of moving the characters through these societies? I think that, um, that what we call reality is not actually real, right? We are very complex biological machines, um, and we create certain things. You know, we imagine that this you know, table, this chair is solid, but we know that it's mostly empty space with a yeah. few atoms scattered across it, right? We, um, we think, oh, I'm a nice person, and then we behave terribly to somebody, and we say that, oh, I wasn't myself. Um, but we were ourselves. It was simply the narrative by which a self is created yeah. is not a true narrative. Um, reality isn't real. Uh, we make it up. Um, and so I think it's very useful in fiction to operate at a slight skew, yeah. um, a very slight skew, yeah. which hopefully intensifies the realness of what we're feeling. And I think readers, in many ways, we come to fiction knowing it's made up because it feels natural to live in a made-up place. It allows us to relax and the normal part of our lives, the non-fictional part of our lives, which we pretend is not made up, that actually is where so much of the falseness yeah. occurs. Yeah. You know, when we pretend that I am a man, or I am a woman, or I am a this, yeah. or I am a that, um, that I am Mosin, and Mosin is like this. These are fabrications, yeah. right? So, um, so that's partly it. The other part of it is I think that, um, that the effect of technology is to collapse physical distance. Yeah. You know, we could be having this conversation you know, via Skype or a WhatsApp call or something yeah. like that. And a little black rectangle that we carry everywhere with us yeah. allows our consciousness, our phone, allows our consciousness to transport from the physical location of our bodies anywhere. Yeah. And this technology doesn't exist by accident. It exists because we desire this. People want to be able to teleport. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so the novel, in a sense, um, the doors, uh, um, I hope, uh, are indicative of, of the technological reality we find ourselves in the 21st century, but also the basic nature of our species, which is a migratory nature. Yeah. We cannot remain anywhere. Even the moment that we just spoke of mm -hmm. is gone. Mm -hmm. We've lost that yeah. moment. We can't return yeah. to it. And time is an experience of continuous migration. And so the doors, the doors um, hopefully capture that in a way that, quote unquote, you know, realism might struggle to. And let's remember that line, time is a process of continuous migration. We'll come back to that uh, after we hear uh, the next reading. Not too far to the south, in the town of Palo Alto, lived an old woman who lived in the same house her entire life. Her parents had brought her to this house when she was born, and her mother had passed on there when she was a teenager, and her father when she was in her 20s. And her husband had joined her there, and her two children had grown up in this house, and she had lived alone with them when she was divorced, and later with her second husband, their stepfather. And her children had moved off to college and not returned, and her second husband had died two years ago. And throughout this time, she had never moved. Traveled, yes, but never moved. 
and yet it seemed the world had moved, and she barely recognized the town that existed outside her property. The old woman had become a rich woman on paper, the house now worth a fortune, and her children were always pestering her to sell it, saying she didn't need all that space. But she told them to be patient. It would be theirs when she died, which wouldn't be long now, and she said this kindly, to sharpen the bite of it, and to remind them how much they were motivated by money, money they spent without having, which she had never done, always saving for a rainy day, even if only a little. One of her granddaughter, great-granddaughters went to the great university nearby, a university that had gone from being a local secret to among the world's most famous in the space of the old woman's lifetime. The granddaughter came to see her, often as much as once a week. She was the only one of the old woman's descendants who did this, and the old woman adored her, and also sometimes felt baffled by her. Looking at her granddaughter, she thought she saw what she would have looked like had she been born in China. For the granddaughter had features of the old woman, and yet looked to the old woman overall more or less, but mostly more, Chinese. There was a rise that led up to the old woman's street, and when she was a little girl, the old woman used to push her bike up and then go get on and zoom back down without pedaling, bikes being heavy in those days and hard to take uphill, especially when you were small, as she was then, and your bike too big as hers had been. She had liked to see how far she could glide without stopping, flashing through the intersections, ready to break, but not overly ready, because there had been a lot less traffic, at least as far as she could remember. She had always had carp in a mossy pond in the back of her house, carp that her granddaughter called goldfish, and she had known the names of almost everyone on the street, and most had been there a long time. They were old California, from families that were California families. But over the years, they ch had changed more and more rapidly, and now she knew none of them, and saw no reason to make the effort, for people bought and sold houses the way they bought and sold stocks. And every year, and every year, someone was moving out, and someone was moving in, and now all these doors from who knows where were opening. And all sorts of strange people were around, people who looked more at home than she was. Even the homeless ones who spoke no English more at home, maybe because they were younger. And when it, she went out, it seemed to her that she too had migrated, that everyone migrates, even if we stay in the same houses our whole lives, because we can't help it. We are all migrants through time. So time is the process of migration. We are all migrants through time. We are all migrants. Does that um, carry with it a sensibility or an empathy that could make a difference in our world today? I mean, I think that um, uh, you know we we experience uh, incredible trauma and suffering and loss as, as individuals, and we, we sort of all pretend that we don't, or we're told that we're supposed to pretend that we don't. And by denying it in each of us, we, um, 
also uh, snub out some of the potential to see it in other people. Yeah. And um, you know, the first thing is that uh, we are all refugees from our childhood. You know, none of us uh, can return to that place. You know, when our parents were alive and our best friends lived nearby and the person who sold ice cream in that particular place was there, um, that's gone. And, um, and we suffer from this. And, uh, and I think that actually um, uh, the violence and hatred and animosity that we so often direct to people who appear to us to be geographic migrants or refugees is an echo of the incredible violence that we've done to ourselves in denying what we ourselves have lost. Um, and that I hope that if we are able to recognize our own sorrow and what we've lost, and everybody participating in this, um, in that sense to be gentler with our own suffering, um, we'll be less inclined to want to inflict it on other people. Yeah, beautiful. So I, I love in your writing the quality of mind combined with the quality of precision of language which allows you just so carefully to explicate changes within the characters and within their relationships. That your characters are so dynamic. And um, so A, is that something that you like, that you really work at as a writer, is how to, how to present change? I mean, it, it, it's changed for me. Um, when I wrote my first novel, Mott Smoke, I um, had, grown up in the sort of horrific dictatorship of General Zia al-Haq in Pakistan, who had this goal of Islamizing Pakistan. And uh, Pakistan is 97% Muslim, so you know, to Islamize a place uh, which is 97% Muslim is, is a bit of a weird uh, concept. But it basically meant that people couldn't have fun and that, you know, that lots of things were banned. And, um, and, and so this idea everybody had to be pure. So I wanted to write a novel about characters who were um, where, you know, where there was no truth and people weren't decent and, um, you know, and so Maud Smoke was a novel that felt like a radical artistic response, to me at least, to what I grew up with. But in the present moment, we find ourselves in a world where the most powerful people are telling us um, um, that uh, there is no truth and that nobody is decent. And so therefore, I thought I would like to write a novel that responds to this um, by saying exactly what it means and uh, about characters who are trying imperfectly to be decent. Um, this, this change of, of saying, you know, saying what you mean in a book, as opposed to Button Fundamentalist we talked about earlier, where it's a half novel where the reader has to sort of stabilize it. This novel isn't like that. It tries to say what it means. Um, because I'd come to realize moving to Pakistan that, you know, I don't know what kind of critical interpretive apparatus I believed readers lived inside when I lived in London or New York, but I'd sort of come to this understanding that, you know, there may not be any such thing. Um, the novel must create within itself its own decoder ring. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, you know, what literature does say what it means? Um, and, and, and I thought of children's literature, uh, because children's literature has a, has a double partisan nature. You, as a, as a reader, are on the side of the characters. You know, in Anna Karenina, if Anna lives or dies, it's kind of neutral. But if Charlotte and Wilbur 
yeah. die. Yeah. It's a disaster. Yeah. And, uh, and so you're on their side. But the book is also on your side. The book isn't saying, I'm going to try to outsmart you, yeah. give you something you yeah. can't get. And so, you know, what you're, what you're describing is, um, <coughs> I'm, I'm, I guess, now in this book, trying to write in a way where things are described the way that um, I see them. Yeah. So your sentences actually re sort of remind me of one of your mentors, of Toni Morrison, because they move and turn and twist and come back and move more than so often they just end with just this fabulous boom turn. It's incredible. Um, the, first, the first beautiful reading that Arise did for us, the, the last five minutes was just three sentences. Beautiful. And I, I, I always put check pluses in books when I love a sentence. This, this book is like, you know, it's like graffiti everywhere, check pluses. Um, but I want to read one that connects to a little bit to both how you write and clearly how you tr chose to write in this novel. And it's about the relationship of Nadia and Saeed. They've left, and it's changing. It's changing. Nadia, too, noticed a friction between them. She was uncertain what to do to disarm the cycles of annoyance they seemed to be entering into with one another. Since, once begun, such cycles are difficult to break. In fact, the opposite. If each makes the threshold, as if each makes the threshold for irritation next time, a bit lower, as in the case with certain allergies. <laughs> Everybody's looking at each other like, is that us? <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible, just incredible. So what's it like to write sentences that move that way and then stick the landing? You're, you're being too generous. I, the one, yeah. uh, having, heard, uh, having not just read Toni Morrison, but, but hear, heard yeah. her read, um, uh, there's nobody, I think, uh, living in the world today who writes sentences like that, uh, certainly not me. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she really is uh, uh, at a level of mastery that I've never uh, encountered anywhere else. Um, now, uh, in terms of, you know, these particular sentences, <clears throat> as I began to write this book, it started to take on a kind of incantatory nature, yeah. as though it was a conjurer, conjuring up a spell. Yeah. And, and it was sort of like, without me knowing where I was headed, um, I realized that it was, it was willing this kind of world into existence. Yeah. A world where the migration happens and we get on with it. Yeah. And we find something to be hopeful and excited about. You know, we find sexy partners and good food and better music. And, um, and, so, um, um, and so willing this into being. Now, incantation um, has a particular cadence, yeah. right? Um, so do sermons of a particular nature. If you think of, of a Martin Luther King sermon, right? What Martin Luther King does in a sermon is he sets up a rhythm. What happens is the rhythm creates an anticipation of, of the next word. The word comes, its rhythm has prepared yeah. its bed. Yeah. And it just lies down. Now, that word which is lied down may be a word or maybe a clause, maybe a group of words with which one is uncomfortable at the level of what the meaning of this yeah. thing is but its inevitability has been created by the rhythm, exactly. right? And so, and so similarly, what I was trying to do in this book was to set up a rhythm which would take the reader through, 
not be difficult to read yeah. because hopefully the cadence would be anticipated, um, but bring into being a kind of world yeah. which is perhaps deeply uncomfortable um, and yet feels accepted um, because the rhythm of it establishes it as natural. Yeah. Um, that really was yeah. the motivation. And these, these sentences, they, the flow is so gorgeous and the landings are just astonishing. It makes you want to write better. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> And so, so as, you, as you did that, that's why you had to read them out loud when you were drafting this. You had to keep reading them and to sort of feel their flow and their movement. And then capture, put the words with the meanings you wanted into the flow almost. Well, because we, you know, we, read, we read with our eyes. I mean, those of us who are sighted, we read with our eyes. <coughs> um, but the neural circuitry by which we process language is, is, is oral circuitry, right? We, 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 our ears is what conveys language to us. Yeah. Um, and so um, looking at words uh, to me is you know, sort of a strange thing because um, in the reader, what the processing that's happening is, is sound. Um, and, uh, and so, um, and so uh, uh, the, the way in which I try to engage with, with sentences is orally. I love the way you keep giving the readers permission and power to be co-creators with you. It's exciting. It's exciting that you respect your readers so much. Do you have an ideal reader for whom you're writing? You know, I, I try to write the books that I need. Um, and, um, you know, I'm a thoroughly hybridized, mongrelized person living in a world where there's an increasing discourse that suggests that purity is possible and that mongrelization and hybridization are yeah. bad. And I perceive this as a, as a threat, not just to myself, but to everybody else. And so I needed to write a book about that, and that's what this book is. Um, so my books are written to the thing that is bothering me, um, to make sense of something for me. Um, but as far as the ideal reader is concerned, not exactly. I, I, I guess I'm trying to build um, you know, a playground uh, or a house um, and, and to conceive of a structure in which a reader can go and then live a life. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you how you should throw a party or what your dinner should yeah. look like or you know, should you sleep on the bed or on the floor, but the house will have places for these things and it will allow certain movements to occur. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm really not writing something that stands on its own. I am writing an invitation for adults to engage in the kind of make-believe that we do as children and that novelists continue to do our whole lives and that actually is fundamentally part of what makes us human. And so the book is meant um, as an invitation to make-believe for yourself. How powerful. That invitation is accepted. Thank, um, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. So we have one very short reading to close the program, but before you give us that reading, I, I do want to ask you, um, how does it feel to receive this gorgeous trophy um, and all that it represents, and do you think that we at the Aspen Institute 
are making a wise decision in endowing, <laughs> endowing this program so that 100 years from now, there'll be 100 people who have won this award. You'll always be first. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the first thing I should say is that, is that somebody made this, um, and, and it is beautiful. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly the best looking prize I've ever seen. Um, no, it's, you know, any time uh, uh, somebody comes forward and tells you that your work matters to them um, is, is incredible because uh, all of us who are writers know that, that um, daily or at least weekly, uh, we come up against the question of, you know, what the hell am I doing? And, um, and so I will cherish this. And in some of the moments when I'm thinking, you know, I'm completely lost and I'm engaged in a totally worthless activity, I will use this to make myself emerge more quickly. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And let's hope that your work and this prize continues to inspire writers all around the world to develop their voices and to make their, their words and ideas heard and to contribute to the betterment of our world in the way that only literature can. So to close the evening, one more time, Therese, uh, would you please read? They finished their coffees. Nadia asked if Saeed had been to the deserts of Chile and seen the stars and was it all he had imagined it would be? He nodded and said if she had an evening free, he would take her. It was a sight worth seeing in this life. And she shut her eyes and said she would like that very much. And they rose and embraced and parted and did not know then if that evening would ever come. Thank you all. Thank you. We'll see Hamid. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Television. Visit grassrootstv.org for on-demand community archive footage, as well as educational, inspiring, and entertaining local programming. A contribution to Grassroots TV allows us to bring your voice to the valley and to preserve media that will be enjoyed by future generations. Visit us at grassrootstv.org and follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Twitter. We encourage you to support all the local businesses and citizens that generously underwrite grassroots programming and play an integral role in nurturing open communication among the residents of the Roaring Fork Valley since 1972. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Community Network.